On one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was in Jumu'ah, giving khutbah. And suddenly, there's a man who came in who looked very disheveled and torn clothing and everything. His name was Sulaik from the Banu Ghatafan tribe. And the Prophet ﷺ in the khutbah, he suddenly told people to donate. And he stopped the khutbah. According to one narration, he actually stopped the khutbah as well. Now, would you do that today? Have a, I mean, I shouldn't even promote this to be honest. I mean, some of the really falling like bang in the middle of the khutbah and you got everybody's attention. Let's have a fundraiser. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, can you take that hadith? No, because that was an, a very extraordinary situation where this person was very, very uh, poor and you could see it. And the Prophet ﷺ wanted people to donate there straight away. And all the narrations don't, there's several narrations that tell you this story. And one of them, it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ actually stopped his khutbah. So it wasn't done while giving a khutbah. Although the, if you look at the other narrations, it actually sh makes it seem as though the khutbah was on and the donation was being given. Because you're not supposed to do anything during the khutbah. Can you see, it's not, a very, it's not a very simple thing that you can just take hadith and run with it. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillahi rahmani rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala al-mab'uuthi rahmatan lil alameen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin. أما بعد قال الله تعالى واعتصموا بحبل الله جميعا ولا تفرقوا وقال تعالى بل هو آيات بينات في صدور الذين أوتوا العلم صدق الله العظيم I'm going to just share some different anecdotes with you this is not some kind of properly organized talk because I think there's some a uh, number of thoughts that I have over this issue and I also have a lot of relief that I want to share with you something I've been thinking about in just the last year so for the last 20 years maybe 25 years there's been a massive brain drain there's been a massive time waste people going around what's your madhab why do you follow this why don't you follow that not any kind of serious discussion or constructive um, study, but what you're doing, what the majority is doing, what your forefathers were doing is wrong. It's a bid'ah. And forget bid'ah, it was kufr and shirk and dal and mudil and you know, every swear word you can find, that was the discussion. So that was for the last 20 years, or actually 25 years. I wrote a book on this subject um, in 1994 or 95. I think 1994, 95. It's been a long time. And uh, the book was just trying to show the evidences for the Hanafi way of prayer, which is pretty much followed by and practiced by 50% of the Muslims around the world, minimum. That came under attack, that it's wrong. So, I remember at that time going to different countries in the world and in some countries they were not willing to even provide evidence because they said, no, we're pandering to the whole discussion. I think it was important to provide evidence. 
And Alhamdulillah, now I can say in the last two, three years, there is, mashallah, aside from a, maybe a small group of madkhalis, I'm not really too well versed with the different names, but as far as I understand, aside from a small group of madkhalis who still are beating the same drum and have not matured yet in that regard, mashallah, mashallah, or other brothers who used to be um, anti-madhab or Salafi or whatever the terms were at that time, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, we can embrace one another and live together as the Muslim Ummah should. And it's such a good feeling. Last two, three years have been amazing. And then this feeling of euphoria, this feeling of um, comfort and success and relief was shattered. I went, I was in Australia this Ramadan and people had stayed awake for the 27th night. And then we prayed Fajr and then we were waiting for the Ishraq and I had a little talk and then I finished and there was a newcomer there in the masjid. It was a very large masjid. There was a newcomer there. So after I finished, and generally after Fajr, there's a number of people that come and ask questions. And then after that, as I was going away from there, they brought this brother along and said, he's got a few questions. He wants to meet you. Assalamu alaikum. Where are you from, brother? And I'm in Iraq. You know, he's from Iraq. I thought he was Saudi first. He was dressed like that, but uh, he, he's from Iraq. Alhamdulillah, wonderful. I talked about Iraq, I talked about Baghdad, I talked about A'zamiyyah, where Imam A'zam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah used to stay, where he's buried. But his purpose was something else. His purpose was we need to discuss the issue of saying the Ameen aloud. And I was like, oh man, I've just, we've just, 25 years of this, we've just, Alhamdulillah, now in England we, we're relaxing. Right? I'm like, come on, are you serious? People have just stayed awake 20, you know, for most of the night or much of the night. They've done worship. 27 more. He said, this is important. This is ilm. We have to study. I said, yes, this is ilm. We have to study. But you know, you choose times for things and whether there's an appetite or whether it's even worth it. Because I was then told that he actually goes to different masajid and he engages people and confuses them like this. When I say confuse, confuse, Obviously, he wants people on his side. It was very polite though, this is one thing. It was very, very polite. Because generally, what, who we've dealt with in the past, they, they, they were not very polite at all. Because they would just see that you are wrong, you are totally misled, you are totally deviant, and I need to correct you. So they won't even listen to you. It was very difficult to get anybody to listen to you. But there's always good people among them, mashallah. So I can't say they were all like that, but this is what... But this brother was very polite, mashallah. And I'm telling him, look, brother, let me tell you, you are wasting your time. He said, how are we wasting time? I said, there's a number of other things we can discuss. People are losing their faith. And the Ameen Bil Jahar issue, the, meaning saying Ameen aloud or silently, both views exist in most Muslims. Most, it's not a fard an obligation at all. It's not an obligation at all. In the hand of your mother, if you did it, you wouldn't be sinful, but it's preferable not to do it. Whereas in the Shafi and Hanbali Madhab as well, it's preferable to do it. But I'm sure if you missed it, it wouldn't be major wrong or anything like that. So why do you need to discuss this on a day like this, especially you know, when people want to now go to sleep? Why would you want to discuss it? It's just that there was a mission. What it was is that whenever anybody, any group of people are driven with a mission to say that, look, you need to go and correct people, then they don't see night or day. They don't see black or white. Then, it, they, Well, that's all they see actually. Then they want to just correct everybody because you're a man on a mission. If only people can replace that for a bigger mission. To save 
people from harams, to save people from shirk and kufr and atheism and all the other deviances which are out there, and to bring other people into Islam. I said, brother, what's your, uh, what's your uh, background? What have you studied? He said, well, I started studying engineering, but then I left the whole kufr system or something like that, he mentioned. said this is all the thing that you got time to do then so it looks like in some countries there's still an issue people haven't matured but alhamdulillah in this country I was actually invited last year six seven months ago to a uh, a retreat a big family retreat which is run by all ex-Salafis you know and I was a bit apprehensive but I went it was mashallah what brotherhood now didn't feel strange at all Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, people have really, really matured, but there are still some elements, I don't know, they have nothing better to do in life than to this. I, I hate speaking like this, but I just want to put the situation, I just wanted to share these thoughts that Alhamdulillah, a lot of people have matured, but some people haven't yet. So now, I'm going to just ask you a few questions. Right? It looks like these guys are getting excited about the questions. Yeah? So I want you to mention, now listen to this, I want you to mention the names of, and this can be done collectively. I just want, I'm going to write down the names of five scholars, five great scholars, from after the scholars of the hadith books like Bukhari, Muslim, and so on, after them, and from before a hundred years ago. I just want you to mention the names of up to about five scholars that you think everybody would know about. The most famous ones, you know, that you would think about. Um, I did this in Middlesex University and the first three, four names came up was Fadilat Ishik Abdul Aziz Bin Baz. I said, sorry, that's just 30 years ago. Then Uthaymeen, right? Ibn Uthaymeen, Rahimahullah. I said, again, that's just Albani. I said, come on, man. And then when I pushed him, I said, okay, Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim. I said, you have not, they could not mention just about. Then finally, when I really pushed it, then they brought someone. Otherwise, these are the five names that people mention only. As though all of Islamic scholarship relies on them. So now I want, I'm going to ask you a question. So it has to be over 100 years ago, approximately. And from maybe the third century onwards. So go on, five names. Yes, go on. Um, no, that he's too early. He died in 150 Hijri, so he's too early. Which Hanifa are you talking about anyway? Imam Hanifa. Imam Hanifa, Imam Abu Hanifa. Okay, I thought maybe you guys know about another Hanifa. Hanifa is a girl's name, by the way. So Abu Hanifa means the father of Hanifa. Technically, that's what it means. But you're talking about the big Imam, right? Yeah. So he died in 150 Hijri. So it's very early. I want somebody after him. Yes, brothers. Yes. Harun al-Rashid. Not bad. Although that's within the first two centuries as well. And he wasn't, I mean, he must have been a scholar in his own right, but he's not known. He's the, he the big khalif of the Abbasids. Have you guys... Shah Waliullah, okay, 300 years ago. Yeah. Imam al-Bani? Imam al-Bani, he's too early. He's, he just died recently. Need to go beyond that. Yes, brother. Shawil you lie, sir. Okay, I'll take that. Shawil you lie. Go ahead. 
Mashallah, Mashallah, Subhanallah, Zabardast. Imam Ghazali, okay. Three more, yes. Louder. No, after. After all of the Hadith scholars. After all of the Imam Bukhari, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawud, after them. Yes. Okay, just think about it and come back to you. Yes. Ibn which okay we can use both if you want. One's a bit yeah. He said Ibnul Arabi, so I'll take that one. Yeah. Yeah. He said it correctly for the Maliki one, isn't it? So yeah. Yes. Come on man. I mean if I start asking about football players, mashallah. History you'll give me. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah. I already gave a clue on that one, so I'm I'm gonna leave that as a, I can use that as well. But still, I want two more. MashaAllah, Barakallahu Feek. Imam Suyuti in Egypt. He's got a nice big, I mean, I've been to his place. I've been to where he's buried in, in Egypt. Yes. Good stuff. Now, now, MashaAllah, the juices are running now. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Okay. So anyway, we've got five names here. One, two, three, four, five, six names actually. Now, these are the five names that you think about, right? If you want, for good measure, put Ibn Qayyim in here as well. Yes. Imam Okay, Jalaluddin Mahalli. Okay. Mahalli, okay. So, this is what I'm going to say now. These are the biggest names in your mind. These are people you listen, uh, you hear their name. This is who are quoted and so on. So, let's see how many of them follow the madhab or not. Because if madhabs are not important, I'm sure they've been, uh, I'm sure Shaykh Abdul Aliya here has emphasized that point and established that point. But if it wasn't important, then why would these big people follow a madhab? Or associate themselves with a madhab, work within a madhab, be scholars of the madhab, be, uh, you know, part of that process. So if we start with Shawadiullah, Shawadiullah is supposed to be Hanafi, right? He's obviously, uh, I'll explain that later. Um, it was Ibn Arabi. Rahimahullah. No, it was Ghazali. Imam Ghazali was a Shafi'i. He was a Shafi'i madhab, right? Ibn al-Arabi was a Maliki. Uh, Imam Suyuti was a Shafi'i. Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani was a Shafi'i. Looks like Shafi'is dominate. Even though they're the third largest madhab after the Hanafis and Malikis. But for some reason they've done something, mashallah, that they seem to dominate. And then you had Ibn Taymiyyah who was Hanbali. He was Hanbali, his father was Hanbali, his grandfather was Hanbali. So they were Hanbalis. Now, many of these scholars like Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, they were Shafi'i. But there were some positions where they went against the Shafi'i school and took something else. Few positions, but they were proud Shafi'is. Um, Imam Shah Waliullah, in some cases, he did espouse some other views, but he was Hanafi. Likewise, Ibn al-Arabi, you probably find something from him where he may have departed. I think he's got a statement about the moving of the fingers. In, you know, when you're in Tashahud, the Malikis, there's a view in there to move the fingers. Uh, I think it's him who mentions that it creates distraction. So, what I'm trying to say is that if you take even other big scholars of the Hanafis like Imam Tahawi, they were all within the Madhab. But because they were such great scholars and at a level of ijtihad where they could do this juridical analysis and endeavor on their own, they did depart sometimes. But they had a right to do that. But they were all within a madhab. 
Yes, I will mention to you names of scholars that were outside of a madhab. They have been, and there were a few famous ones, but they were a minority. You had people like Dawood al-Zahiri, Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri, the other Ibn, Ibn Arabi, the Shaykh, he was Zahiri. So you have a minority who were Zahiri. Zahiri means they say we're going to take from the apparent meaning of the text. And there's a complicated discussion here about Ijtihad and, and, and so on and so forth. But the overwhelming majority had a madhab. In the last 30 years, this call comes about, don't follow a madhab. So what should we follow instead? And this was something that I thought about for a very long time. What should we follow instead? And it wasn't sounding right. They said, let's follow Quran and Sunnah directly. It's okay. Let's follow Quran and Sunnah directly. All right, I've been dealing with this since the beginning, since the 1990s. As, as Sheikh has as well, right? So, I said something doesn't make sense. The reason is that if, I am, if the call is, which is a beautiful call, follow the Quran and Sunnah directly. Recently on a radio TV show, uh, question and answer, somebody said, what madhab did Imam Abu Hanifa follow? So my answer was that he followed the Hanafi madhab, broadly speaking. What else is he going to follow? Because the Hanafi madhab is not some innovation, it's just an interpretation, one interpretation. Now what happens is that those people who say follow Quran Sunnah directly, so okay, fine. I'm going to take Bukhari, Muslim and many other hadith collections and I'm going to start to go directly right, and find the hadith about the issue I'm dealing with and I'm going to follow that. Say, okay, are you happy now that I'm following this? Brother, what's your answer? Let me see, what is your opinion you followed? So I said, this is my opinion. He said, no, that's wrong. I said, but you said follow Quran Sunnah. That's, this is the hadith. No, but this hadith uh, is not the one that we accept or is not the one that we would take as the view because Ibn Uthaymeen or Sheikh Bin Baz or Albani did not go with this one. They went with the other one. But I thought you said follow Quran Sunnah directly. And this is Sahih Hadith. No, that's not. You have to follow it through the lens of our scholars. This only hit me about seven years ago, after about 19 years of banging my head on this. That what people are calling towards is just the fifth madhab. There's no Quran Sunnah. It is Quran Sunnah, but it's through the lens of a group of scholars. So if you take Quran and Sunnah directly, but it does not match up, with what their scholars said, they will not accept it. So what they're saying is follow the Quran Sunnah through our scholarship, through our scholars. I said, well, then it's just my scholars against your scholars. My scholars are older. They've stood the test of 1300 years. They were closer. They were tabi'een. Imam Abu Hanifa was tabi'i, rahimahullah. They were closer to the time of the Sunnah in practice. Today, can you go anywhere in the world where you actually see the Sunnah in practice the way it was? In time of the Prophet No. So for example, technically, if I wanted to start a new madhab today, maybe technically I could, but it would be purely theory-based. What that means is that I would just have the Quran and Sunnah text, and I would have to just apply that. And what they had then, like Imam Malik in Medina Munawwara, is he had the text in front of him of the Quran and Sunnah, but he also had people who had seen the Sahaba, doing what they saw the Sahaba doing, what they saw the Prophet doing. So he could actually con confirm what he's reading, or not just confirm, but get an example 
and a clarification of what he's reading to what's being practiced. Same with Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, because Ibn Masood Abdullah ibn Masood Ali and others had moved to Kufa. Numerous Sahaba had moved to Kufa, and obviously they had not started a new way. They continued to practice the Islam that they had learnt in Medina Munawwara. So now in Kufa, this had been spread there. Imam Abu Hanifa took from that heritage just within the 50 years that, that it was there. You see the difference now? So why should I now take from somebody today who comes with a new idea? Even though Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah used to follow a madhab, yes, he had divergences. He had opinions that were separate, but he still considered himself broadly speaking within the Hanbali school. I mean, the Hanbali school has a lot of room for difference of opinion anyway, I guess, right? To a certain degree, yeah? So, do you understand what we're saying here? There is no pure following of the Quran and Sunnah. Why is there no pure following of the Quran and Sunnah? Meaning there is, it is a following of the Quran and Sunnah, but it's always through something because unless you're a big scholar in your own right and you develop your own madhab, and I already said, if you want to develop your own madhab, you're still going to be at a disadvantage because you don't have any practical manifestation of what the Prophet was doing and what the Sahaba were doing because that's been lost now. Which community in the world still has proper Sunnah lifestyle? Which community in the world? Saudi Arabia? Some village in Pakistan? Afghanistan? Taliban? Uh, Mauritania? They might have remnants of some, they might have some aspects, Alhamdulillah, I mean, it's all there broadly speaking, but pure, where you can see, wow, this is how the Prophet lived, this is how the Sahaba acted, that would be a bit complicated. So then, the, what's important now though, is still to understand why there are differences why can't there just be one way a lot of people sincere people like why can't there why is there a difference of opinion why are we so uh, divided this is you know there's utopian ideas in people's mind they would love to just see everything in synchrony you know everything to be one way so a lot of people if they don't understand this like, why can't it just be one way? And that's a genuine question. Like, why can't it be one way? Well, there's good reasons for that. There's a ontological reason, which I'll talk about later. But there's a very practical, simple reason. And then there's a wisdom behind it. And there's other reasons as well. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, different things happened. Different uh, occasions arose different answers were needed. So for example, what's your name, brother? Sayyid. If brother Saeed came to the Prophet and said, look, I've got this question. So the Prophet would respond to him based on his circumstance. Then, what's your name? Faisal. Faisal or Faisal? Okay, the, dis the, the discriminator, <laughs> right? The, the distinguisher, mashallah. Um, so, Faisal comes, Prophet given another, based on his context, another response. One person came to the Prophet and the discussion was about whether you can kiss your wife in Ramadan. He said, no. Another person said it was okay. To another person, it was okay. Why? One was freshly married, the other one was veteran in marriage. Now, we don't know who came first, or if somebody doesn't know that this one was older, this one was younger, they're going to think this is a contradiction. You can open up Sahih al-Bukhari, you know, the book that everybody wants to go to, and you will find within the same chap 
same broad chapter, hadith that seem to contradict one another. One says do it, the other one says don't do it. If you look at any of these hadith, like Sahih Sunan al-Tirmidhi, uh, Imam Tirmidhi will have a chapter saying, the chapter of those who say it is permissible to do X, Y, and Z, and he'll mention a hadith under it. Then he'll have another, and then he'll mention who takes that view. Then he'll have another chapter in which he says, those who say you should not do this. And then he'll have the view of those as well. There's hadith for all of this. That's why it's very difficult to study Sahih al-Bukhari with a comment, without a commentary. Very, very difficult. I mean, you'd be confused. Because it's just all many Sahih hadith put together. Right? With different, uh, uh, of, um, uh, different points of view trying to, you know, Imam Bukhari is trying to put through different points of view with it. But you need a comment. That's why there's tens of commentaries written in multi-volumes about this. So, there's, I mean, there's numerous examples of this I can give you. For example, Abu Bakr all of his wealth, when he gave it for the expedition of Tabuk, all of it. From Uthma, uh, from Umar it was half. From others, when they went like Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, when he wanted to give his in the path of Allah, he said, no. He says, you can only give one third, and even a third is too much. Leave it for your inheritors. Why did he accept from Abu Bakr half from Umar and only one third year? Oh, they were different occasions. I mean, so it depends on the person, how much the person knows they can rely on it. So what do you take from you? Are you allowed to give all of your wealth? Or aren't you allowed? The, the scholars will look at these hadith and they will decide, oh, this was particular context. It was a very specific person. Most people aren't like Abu Bakr I mean, Abu Bakr was amazing. After he migrated to Medina Munawwara, the Prophet said, oh, they were on their way to Medina Munawwara. It took them some time to get to Medina Munawwara. His father, who had become blind by now, Abu Kuhafa, radiallahu anh, he'd become blind now. He started saying to Abu Bakr's daughter, his granddaughter, Asma, radiallahu anha, what has your father left for us? He's taken everything because they needed their supplies for the way. What has he left for us? So look at the daughter of this man. She, she, he was blind, uh, Abu Kuhafa, her grandfather was blind. She led him to a pile of pebbles that looked like dirhams, that felt like dirhams or coins. Put a cloth over it and said, look, put his hand over it and said, look how much he's left for us. I Meaning he's left all of these stones for us. He thought it was money, obviously. That's the family we're dealing with here. They can give 100% in the path of Allah and they'd be happy. And they won't feel disgruntled afterwards. But not everybody can do that. that. That was special, right? That's one example. There's a number, number of examples. There's another hadith in which Ibn Umar anhu would narrate that a Prophet said that the deceased, the dead person is punished due to the crying of his house folk. So if you cry after somebody dies in your family, you're the person who, is, who has just died that you're crying over. He's going to be punished because you cry. That's what it seems to say, right? However, Aisha radiallahu anha said that no, she knew the story. She knew the inside story because she was with the Prophet. She said that no, that was a very particular Jewish woman. That the Prophet stated this about a very particular Jewish woman upon whom her household was crying. So this is not a general rule. So you can see now, if somebody doesn't know that and they've just heard the one hadith, they're going to say, oh, um, you're 
the deceased is going to get a lot of punishment if anybody cries. Now, we would say that the deceased would be punished if he told people to cry and bequested that people cry and make a big scene at his grave, then yes, he would be punished to wail and so on like they used to do. But if he didn't do that and people were just doing it, then inshallah, he should not be punished. Why should he be punished? Can you see how you have a general hadith or hadith about a particular situation that could be maybe misunderstood to be more comprehensive about everything? On one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was in Jumu'ah, giving khutbah. And suddenly, there's a man who came in who looked very disheveled and torn clothing and everything. His name was Sulaik from the Banu Ghatafan tribe. And the Prophet ﷺ, in the khutbah, he suddenly told people to donate. And he stopped the khutbah. According to one narration, he actually stopped the khutbah as well. Now, would you do that today? Have a, I mean, I shouldn't even promote this to be honest. I mean, some of the really folk like bang in the middle of the khutbah and you got everybody's attention. Let's have a fundraiser. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, can you take that hadith? No, because that was an, a very extraordinary situation where this person was very, very uh, poor and you could see it. And the Prophet ﷺ wanted people to donate there straight away. And all the narrations don't there's several narrations that tell you this story and one of them it mentions that the Prophet actually stopped his khutbah so it wasn't done while giving a khutbah although the, if you look at the other narrations it actually makes it seem as though the khutbah was on and the donation was being given because you're not supposed to do anything during the khutbah can you see it's not a very it's not a very simple thing that you can just take hadith and run with it on one occasion there was a janazah going past a funeral beer and the Prophet stood up some people would think from that that he stood out of respect so whenever janazah goes past you better stand up because that's sunnah now that's what they think however it was the reason for it was that it was an unbeliever and the Prophet did not want that to go over his head so he stood up so that it doesn't pass over his head totally different reasonings there's a hadith about doing wudu before every meal. So, who does that? Hamad, do you do wudu before you eat? Why not? It says it in the hadith. So, you see, wudu is something you guys need to. Wudu literally just means washing your hands. That's basic wudu. Proper wudu, when we say it as a term as a technical term it means the full mashallah the full wudu do you understand wudu just means to wash your hands otherwise so this is what it is wash your hands cleanse yourself before eating we do that don't we right so you do wudu before eating yeah that wudu not the big one right yeah so just to give you examples that this is the hadith we've inherited in some cases, very clear that so. In some cases, it's very clear that the first command the Prophet gave was abrogated; it was cancelled. Sometimes the Prophet would mention it himself. In one hadith, he said, "I used to prohibit you from visiting graveyards." So we know that he used to; it was a prohibition. Then he said, "Al-an fazuruha." <coughs> However, now you can visit them. You should visit them. So some cases, it's very clear when something was uh, one way, and then the Prophet did it another way. But in many occasions, it was the ruling was given to an individual. Sayyid Bai would come and he would give him a ruling. Ahmed Bai, um, Faisal Saab, 
you know, they would give different ruling. Now, this is, if you had heard this, you would tell, this is what the Prophet said to me. And if you heard him, what would you say? Wouldn't you say that he's wrong? No, he told me that Omar radiallahu anh, once <coughs> listening to somebody recite in prayer, he said, I was so angry that I was going to break my prayer and stop him. He was reading differently. It's a famous hadith. Like I felt like Umar was like, you know, always, I felt like breaking my prayer to stop him. Then I didn't. After prayer, I said, where did you? He said, the Prophet told me to read this way. No, but the Prophet told me to read this way. So they went to the Prophet The Prophet said, okay, fine, you read. So he read. He goes, that's right. And then he told Umar, you read. That's right as well. The Quran has been revealed on seven modes. Right? So you can understand that there, if that a certain ruling was given, you would stick by that. But, and why would you think there'd be something different? Because you'd heard it from the Prophet Now, the job of the ulama, so now what happens is that in the time of the Sahaba, they got along with this. Umar radiallahu an, whatever issues came up and became a confusing issue, he would have a committee of the prominent uh, and educated, uh, the muftis of the Sahaba and others. Whenever he needed to, he would consult Aisha and send somebody to Aisha Radiallahu's house that what do you think about this? What was the exact story? And they clarified a number of issues. But there were lots of other issues that weren't clarified. So now come the time of the Tabi'een. So among them you have different scholars who had studied with the Sahaba and others. They started to teach and obviously people's issues increase. They need more answers. And you don't find all the answers in what the Prophet said directly because those issues were not, had not arisen in the time of the Prophet So, mashallah, in the different cities of the Muslim world, different scholars started to do this work of helping people and codifying the Sharia and responding to people's issues. So, give you some names. Who was in Makkah Mukarramah? Who was the, some of the few big scholars of Makkah Mukarramah? Anybody know? Yes. No, no, he's, he's Medina Munawwara. <coughs> Makkah Mukarramah, Ata ibn Abi Rabah, students of Abdullah ibn Abbas He's considered one of the good jurists from there, muhad, uh, Mufassirin and other, other things, right? So in different cities, you had a number of different people. Uh, in Sham, one of their big, they had many, but one of the biggest ones whose name came out, uh, ke- ke- became well known. Who was the famous scholar of Sham? Imam Awza'i. One of the most famous muftis of Egypt who did the similar work to Imam Abu Hanifa in Kufa. So Imam Malik was doing this in Medina Munawwara. Imam Abu Hanifa was doing this in Kufa. Before him, it already started through people like Imam Nakha'i and all that. But when it came to Abu Hanifa, it, was, it just, mashallah, expanded. And he became the well-known and left students. That's why he became the most well-known. In Medina Munawwara, it was Imam Malik, rahimahullah. And there were others. Rabi'atul Ra'i, a lot of others. But these people, their work expanded and became well known and was transferred and uh, passed on to others. In Egypt, if you go there today, one of the most prominent people buried there is Layth ibn Sa'd. Rahimahullah. Layth ibn Sa'd. That is where the Egyptian caravans for Hajj used to depart from, from outside his maqam. Right? He was the scholar of Egypt. You know, you could say the Abu Hanifa of Egypt, right? And then you had other scholars in other towns. They all 
basically informally started developing a madhab. They never knew it was going to become a madhab. They were just responding to people. They were just answering questions. They were just doing their job. So now, slowly, slowly, these four, even though Imam Shafi came so much later, and Imam Ahmad even after him, mashallah, can you believe it? That's ajib qubuliya. Because they were older people than them, and their madhab just waned and finished. Multiple reasons could be that they didn't have enough students to pass it on. You need, you know, to, to get your message across, you either need social media, right? There was no social media or students who relate to you. So Imam Abu Hanifa had some amazing students, Imam Abu Yusuf. There's multiple reasons why the Hanafi Madhab dominated, right? Uh, some reasons, Imam uh, Muhammad wrote all of these books, but then other scholars there, students wrote books. But I think one, one big reason was that Imam Abu Yusuf, Rahimahullah, is a direction Imam Abu Hanifa, and actually a teacher of Imam Muhammad as well. These are the three main Hanafi scholars, right? Imams, founding Imams. He became the Qadi al-Qudat, the chief justice of the Abbasid empire. And then the Abbasids had this inclination towards the Hanafis. Right? So they would generally employ Hanafi judges in the, and Abbasids had the world. Abbasid started in 132 Hijri and they stayed until the 600s. That's like 500 years. Yes, their, their influence waned afterwards. Uh, though they were still the titular heads eventually afterwards, but initially they controlled everything. When you say Harun and Rashid, Abu Jafar al-Mansur and all of these other people. Yes, then we had a little bout of Mu'tazilism within them. Even then there'll be some Hanafis and Mu'tazilism. Well, let me not uh, get into that right now. That could be one of the reasons. Then after that, some of the major dynasties of the world, major ruling uh, families and uh, ruling uh, factions or rulers of the world, uh, so in terms of who are Arab, you've got the Abbasids and Umayyads, but the Abbasids are primarily Hanafi-leaning. Uh, Umayyads is kind of before the Madhab time. They were not, you know, the Madhabs had not been developed by then, 132 Hijri. And then you had the Seljuks, right? Primarily Hanafi. Although there's some interesting Shafi'i things going on in the Nizamul Mulk and so on, not figured that out yet. And then you've got the Ottomans came later. Ayyubids were Shafi'is because uh, Salahuddin Ahmad was Kurdish. Uh, Fatimids were Shia, they're the other Arabs. But then you had the Mamluks, various different Mamluks, the Circassian Mamluks and the other Mamluks, Turkic origin. Samanids were Hanafis, right up in the Uzbekistan area. And then the Ottomans for 600 years, or what is it, five, 600 years, all together, Hanafis. So that could be one of the reasons why it's Hanafi like that. And then it just developed. So the Madhab of, for example, Ibn Jarir al-Tabari Rahimahullah The Madhab of Awza'i Madhab of Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri The Madhab of Layth ibn Sa'ad The Madhab of Nakha'i The Madhab of all these others That were doing the same work at the, Similar work at the same time It did not last That's up to Allah who he chooses What I'm amazed about is Imam Ahmad came later He's a student of Imam Shafi'i And Imam Shafi'i Born on, in the year the Imam Hanifa dies Can you see how much later? Whereas this effort had started before. But mashallah, Allah accepts them. I don't know why. You know, you can obviously go into that of why that's the case. Now, if you, if you want and you want to follow Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri's madhab, well, you'd have to try to find all of his opinions and then there must be a very good reason why you want to do that. You know, because it's just no development. 
There's no development on that. Nobody's developed it. The Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki and Hanbali have been developed. And I would probably say that from a fiqh perspective, Hanafis and Malikis are probably more developed than the Shafi'is and then the Hanbalis. You can just correct me if I say anything weird about the Hanbalis today. I would put the Shafi'is before the Malikis. Oh, you'll put them before? Okay. I think in terms of Nawazil, the modern novel issues, yeah, maybe in just basic ijtihad and so on, they're very high up there. But in terms of new issues, new fatawa, the Malikis are really up there. They're the only two madhabs who rule under an empire as well. That's true. Yeah, that's right. The Malikis under the Banu Ahmar, the Murabitun, and a number of these North African, Andalusia. The Andalusian Umayyads, they must have been Maliki as well then. MashaAllah. It's an amazing history you should read. Get off your football for a while. All right? And read this stuff. I'm telling you, it's amazing. You know, all that cloud in your mind, like what happened? Why can't we be one? You know, I love it the way it is. Because I love to meet my Shafi'i brothers and Maliki brothers and just have a good discussion. I celebrate that. I enjoy that. But some people, they're like, no, it needs to be one. Well, look, number one, these differences aren't even a problem. They're not an aqidah difference because all their aqidahs are the same. They're supposed to be the same. You've had weird deviants from you know, some of these madhabs that they were Mu'tazili or what else? Maybe Khawarij, Dha'i. Mujassim, proper anthropomorphist or whatever. But the majority, it's always been, look, Ra'yi Sahih. This became a motto. Ra'yi Sahih, Yahtamilul Khata. Wa Ra'yuka Khata, Yahtamilul Sawab. My opinion is correct. It has the potential of being incorrect. I acknowledge that. Your opinion is incorrect, but it has the potential of being correct. And you, as a Shafi'i, are doing what was required of you. I am as a Hanafi doing what was required of me. Because the Prophet ﷺ said that the person qualified, the person qualified to undertake ijtihad and study and analyze and derive rulings. As long as they've done their job and in a qualified way, then whatever conclusion they came up with, it's either going to be yes or no, or halal or haram, or whatever, right? Can only be two options or three options. Only one of them is actually going to be right according to Allah. So let's just take a simple case that somebody comes to me with a divorce issue and he goes to another mufti. I say, I think it is a divorce. The other mufti said, no, no, I don't think it's a divorce. Who's right? According to Allah, there must be only one right. They can't both be right. We're both right in the sense that we've done what we're supposed to do is to try to find an answer. That much, that endeavor is right. But in terms of getting what is right according to Allah, only Allah knows that. I'm going to think what my conclusion is is right. He's going to think what his conclusion is right. On the day of judgment, we're going to figure out, hold a big meeting with the Shafi's and Hanafi's and Hanbali's and Malik's. Like, okay, let's see how many Masail you are writing, how many you are writing, how many you are writing. You think we're going to do that? I doubt it. I don't know. I really think sometime I think they will when they've stayed in paradise long enough. I doubt it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see a lot of movies in paradise. <laughs> Battle of Badr. Battle of Uhud. But then you sometimes think, are we ever going to get away from the distractions of paradise to even think about this? It's a real conundrum, but inshallah, let's get there. Then we can, we can do that. So, Sheikh Anwar Shah Kashmiri, who lifelong, uh, you know, studied the hadiths and tried to defend the Hanafi school and respond to these things, he said, 
am I going to find out? Are we going to find out who was the correct? Because just going back to the hadith, the hadith says that if you do get and achieve what is right according to Allah, you get two rewards. And if you've got it wrong, you still get one reward for trying, as long as you're qualified. So now, I guess when you look at your book of deeds and scrutinize them, you'll find out where you're right or wrong. You've got two rewards for this one. I've got one mark for this one. You'll probably find out then. Not us, the mushtahideen. Right? So anyway, that's why I don't think it's going to come together. Because there, there have been efforts, by the way, in the past to try to make it one madhab. Uh, was it Abu Ja'far al-Mansur who tried to do this with the Imam Malik's muatta? That look, we'll make this the code of law. He said, no. Imam said, no. Because, you see, another wisdom of this, Wallahu alayhi, just the wisdom, is that the Prophet must have said or done all of these different things because he did do raful yadain, raising the hands in the beginning. He did do that multiple times in the prayer, even before sujood and ruku, uh, before and after sujood in between, like seven times. Seven times. Uh, Shafi's don't say that, Hanbalis don't say that either. They just say do it twice extra, before and after ruku, right? What about when you come back from a sujood? Oh, not, not from after sujood, when you stand back up for the, the second rakat? No. Oh, he would say it. Oh, there's difference of opinion. Okay. Well, yeah. okay. So, Hanafi said, no, even that got abrogated. That was initially it was done, but later it wasn't because we have hadith which say the Prophet only did it in the beginning. They have a hadith, we have a hadith. They said that, oh, that was the final. We said, no, this is the final, that was before. Can you see how they reconciled it? We're not disagreeing with that. We're not saying it never happened. We're just saying that it didn't happen at the end. It eventually became much more, you know, uh, less movements. So, but through the four madhahib, all the actions of the Prophet are alive. And that's just the wisdom, but for whatever it's worth. So it's not going to come to an end. If I want to put an ontological twist onto this, some people just don't like it. I remember once I was in a program, some liberals and others, and it's like, why can't we just be one? And they were just, why can't we be one? I said, like, please stop wasting your time. We definitely need to minimize any more difference of opinion. We need to stay together and, you know, uh, we need to learn to live together and not let it bother us. But it's not all going to be one because the Prophet made a dua and it wasn't accepted. Remember he made that, those three du'as, two were accepted, one, my ummah will never differ, that was not accepted, alright? Some people don't like that, they said, no, wala sawfi yurdika rabbuka fatarda. Right, they said, no, Allah can change it. Well, if he changes, alhamdulillah, I'm welcome, I'll welcome it. But let's not make, let's not cry over it, let's learn to live. So, mashallah, we have two eats. I prefer one day, but I'm completely happy. I mean, you should educate yourself if you do it the other day, but I will still say Eid Mubarak to you. Just don't think it's a big problem until you educate yourself. It's a reality. Just deal with the reality. I'll give you one uh, example. A friend of mine was an imam in uh, South Africa, in a town, in, in a city in South Africa. And they were both Shafi'is and Hanafis in the community. They would do Tarawih prayer together. Now imagine, they brewed Tarawih prayer together. And then for the Witr, one group would stay here and do with her. The other one would go into that room or that room and do with her their way. And they were happy doing this for years. A new Imam came, the savior, and he said, this is ikhtilaf. This is a problem. And he insisted that everybody start praying together. Hanafis are unhappy if it, they do it this way. Shafi's unhappy if they do it this way. Can you see now, uh, in form, they became the same. 
but their hearts were divided. So, uh, this same Australian brother, right? This same Australian brother, I said, we don't need to. Now, these are some uh, normal arguments. He said, they had four mihrabs in the haram. I said, do they still have it? He said, no. So I said, why are you talking about it for? They had it for some time. They don't have it anymore. Why? Why you? They use these anecdotal issues to make it sound like this is some big ikhtilaf. And then in the past, we have had where certain mothers have gone, uh, have gone a bit hot and, you know, uh, there's been a bit of an issue. Not for the majority. They have. So they'll bring that as an excuse from 1300 years or 1250 years or 1300 years of this. Oh, look, this is what happens. You're the one creating the ikhtilaf here. Stop creating ikhtilaf. To be honest, if somebody came and said, you want to follow Albani? or Abdul Aziz bin Baz or whoever and they want to pray differently Mubarak, do it if you've got evidence, do it, no problem the problem we have is where they say everybody else is wrong that is the issue I have no problem with a person praying something differently as long as he knows what he's doing you know, as long as he's got some evidence for what it is Alhamdulillah that's why mashallah among the Salafis the, uh, the, the Ilmi Salafis were always decent you could, you could discuss with them Right? And they would be willing to uh, entertain. But those which, unfortunately, I think, the, or unless they were just the loudest ones, the majority, they were just like, no, it's the only other way. But alhamdulillah, you know, we can say that it's much better now. So I think um, that's the reason why there's only four madhabs left today. And uh, the Hanbali madhab has just got a resurgence. Alhamdulillah. Huh? <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah, all the madhab to stay. But the Hanbali madhab was really, really, you can say, an oppressed madhab in a sense that those who were Hanbalis, they thought they were something else. So I don't know. But Alhamdulillah, people are turning back to madhabs now, which is amazing. Alhamdulillah. But it's been such a waste of 25 years. And I pray to Allah that Allah doesn't allow us to waste time because we could have done so much more. You know, the amount of books that were written, the amount of lectures that were given, the amount of arguments and debates that took place, websites. And subhanallah, what a waste of time. Isn't a madhab saying they're saying is correct but could be wrong, and other madhab is incorrect and could be right, suggest that they don't accept all madhab are on haq and believe that I am more right than you are. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. That's uh, what I was speaking about earlier that for you to think that you are definitely more on the right is necessary. How can I think I'm going to give this fatwa, but I'm wrong? So yes, definitely, the fatwa that a madhab will give, they have to think it's more correct. But they're also willing to acknowledge that it could be wrong. If we can have a discussion, it could be wrong. And your madhab is wrong. Meaning your opinion is wrong, but it has the potential of being correct. If you can prove it. Right? However, as I mentioned, we're both doing what is correct. Because you had to undertake the effort to reach a conclusion and you've done that, you'll be rewarded at least once. And I'm hoping to be rewarded twice. So they're both correct in the sense they've done what they're supposed to do. But according to Allah, only one of them is actually correct. And I have to think it's my one, otherwise why am I following that view? Anything to add? Uh, perhaps, take both of them. Uh, perhaps also it will help to understand uh, the words that we're using, right on the truth, um, that, that we can use those words in different ways. So when it's 
when we're talking about a madhab or a fiqhi fatwa opinion, then uh, as Sheikh Abdurrahman has said, in the case of two different scholars giving two opposite fatwas, this is halal, this is haram, it is a divorce, it's not a divorce. And they are both qualified and they've gone through all the necessary uh, knowledge base criteria to give the fatwa. Then both of them fall under the hadith of the Prophet, which Sheikh Abdurrahman indicated to. When a judge strives and makes a judgment and is correct, he will get two rewards. And if he errs, he gets one reward. Who gets two or one? That's a hereafter question. Under no situation are they sinful. So, in that sense, they are both, in the broad sense, on the truth. They haven't left the truth. However, in the specific sense, one of them is right and one of them is wrong, but both of them are, both of them are on the truth such that Allah rewards them. It's just that he rewards one of them twice as much. But under no case does, he, uh, does Allah consider them to a sinner. And a non-scholar who in good faith follows that fatwa or follows the other fatwa, certainly not knowing better, trusting the scholar, they too are within the broad uh, uh, sphere of following the truth and they too are not sinful. What I've said here is something on which there is an ijma, a consensus about that no scholar would differ. Okay? But the point is, why would a mufti give a fatwa, he is divorced, when, he, when the mufti believes, no, actually he's not divorced, the, the mufti would be sinning then. So of course you, uh, if a scholar or even an educated layperson, if I, if I can push it that much, says I choose to be a Hanafi or a Maliki for X, Y, Z reasons rather than a Hanbali or a Shafi, then inshallah they've chosen because what they feel might give them closer to the truth. As opposed to, I'm just a Hanafi because that was the only lot of scholars in my uh, city, or I'm a, ha a Maliki because everybody of my family is a Maliki. Same thing with a layperson. If, he, if he's a convert or she's a convert and decides to choose the Maliki or the uh, Hanafi Malthab because it's more easily taught and accessible, or, or, not, or, or because they feel that it's the truth, fine, alhamdulillah. Then they feel that, this is the this is more true than this is more right than the other one but it's just but they're not saying that others are outside of the truth so we have to understand the difference between the general truth and specifically being right and wrong and beyond that it should be plain sailing inshallah yeah. uh, imam ibn Saymi has a, a point he said the errors that uh, the social harms that will arise from the error of a qualified scholar is far, far, far less than the error, the social harm that arises because of being bigoted or jealous or overzealous on the ijtihad of the scholars. Because as long as the scholar does his thing, it could be her, but does his thing, then Allah's barakah and madad is there. Two rewards or one reward, but it's a reward, it's a madad. Um, it's outside factors that make it worse. Uh, one more thing. Salafi scholars, if we are talking about bin Baz al-Albani, uh, Sheikh ibn Thaymeen, even Salafis don't realize, and this is something, it's checkable. So, personally, myself with a group of brothers, uh, back in late 80s, and then again in the early 90s, we asked Sheikh al-Albani, 
uh, passed away in 1999, that we in the UK, uh, what should we do? Uh, should we, like, uh, first of all, all the Salafi scholars, none of them ever said a lay person can go back to the Quran and Hadith directly. They consider that to be worse than fornication, drinking, think, like the rest of the scholars. Why? Because it's talking about Allah's religion without knowledge. Salafi foot soldiers, some of them say that say it, but they have no precedence from the scholars that they're following. This is this is very clear. What they do say, which causes confusion, is they say when a person who studies fiqh gets to a particular level where he can disagree with his madhab for another madhab on one issue, then he has an obligation to differ from his madhab for another madhab on that issue, just like apparently Shah Walulah did uh, when he left the Hanafi madhab for a Shafi ruling and so on and so forth. The difficulty with that is even though theoretically they all, scholars as far as I know or more or less say the same, that level of scholarship is almost unattainable except in one or two fields by one or two scholars today and a few more fields by a few more scholars a hundred years ago. They weren't talking about people who are not qualified in fiqh uh, like me who's not even done iftar or anything like that who's just following the school that oh I can now pick and choose because I've reached that level. And Salafis misunderstand this. This is why Sheikh Albani said it. He said, for you in the UK, and he said, I visited the UK in the mid-60s, and is, as far as Islam and Iman is concerned, it's a disaster, he said. Uh, you should all make hijrah, <laughs> right? That's what his advice was to us. He said, however, whilst you're packing your bags, he said, um, you should follow uh, the dominant fiqh of what is being taught here. He said, because... Following qualified Sunni fiqh is better than doing DIY ijtihad because one, you're always going to be under the mother of Allah and the other one, you're always going to be sinful even if you're right. And then he quoted a hadith, he said, even though fihi another, uh, he said, there's, I believe there's some weakness in the authenticity, but the meaning is correct. When a person interprets the Quran who's not qualified, even if he's right, he's sinful. So if a person who interprets fiqh and fatwa, even if he's right and not qualified, even if he's right, he's sinful. That was his advice. The advice that he gave five years later was, I have written a book uh, 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 based on the madhab of Imam Shawkani. I can't remember the name of the book, Durr al madiya It's an A to Z book of fiqh. Uh, if you want, you, you can follow that. Ibn Uthaymin was always, follow, the, follow, follow your madhab, a madhab, and if you reach a qualified station after 10, 20 years, then do what is obliged upon you through your ijtihad. Ibn Abbas the same. I actually don't know any of the major Salafi scholars and their fatwas are available who's ever said to not just a lay person, but to a half-baked student of knowledge, a mutafaqi, that actually go on and weigh, weigh up the affairs. How that got into the dawah and why it's become the dominant view for so many early years, who knows, someone maybe can research that and work that out. But from day one, Ibn Uthaymin was as clear as a whistle. Sheikh bin Baz was pretty clear. Al-Albani, sometimes you could listen to his fatwas and misunderstand. And sometimes you could get it on the, on the dot. So there was a bit of ambiguity there. But none of them actually said the non-qualified. They were... Uh, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin, when I, when I met him in 1999, six months before he passed away, and told him that was what was going on, uh, he just kept on making istighfar, istighfar. And he didn't say anything after that, and I felt embarrassed to carry on the majlis because I kind of we upset the sheikh, so we just left. Okay, we've got a question here. 
scholars in the same madhab carry different views. How does the layman determine what is what the correct view of the madhab is? So today you're going to find scholars of the Hanafi school and they'll have differences of opinions. Uh, those are not necessarily madhab opinions as such. They're based on, maybe most likely they're going to be based on modern issues. So uh, with every madhab it has to continue to develop, to deal with the modern issues that come out. And in the last 40 years or 50 years the world has changed as it's never changed before, that as much as that. So there's been... Uh, lots of issues, you know, everything from cloning to uh, artificial intelligence, um, gender change, uh, there's just so much. So clearly, there's go it's going to be very difficult for all the Hanafis to agree on one thing, all the Shafis to agree on one thing. So what we generally suggest uh, to individuals in that, that you pick up a group of one, two, or maybe three scholars within the madhab that you follow, because there's many scholars in the Hanafi school, pick one or two muftis, and just, just go with that, what they say. Otherwise, it's going to get very confusing to go to different muftis. Um, and uh, get, there's going to be a lot of confusion, a lot of nas will come into there and so on. So just, and how do you pick these muftis? Somebody that you trust for their knowledge, their integrity, their righteousness, their piety, uh, their past uh, record. And uh, so that's what I do. You know, I have questions. So I would look up to maybe Mufti Radawal Haqsab. One of my teachers is actually in the UK right now from South Africa. And Mufti Taqi Usmani would be another person that I would consult. You know, and uh, so that's what you would do. If you're going to... So today you're going to have quite a few differences in many Masail within the Hanafi schools and scholars themselves. Right? Because it's just inevitable that uh, so many new issues, how do we deal with it? There's a number of questions. Um, can you switch madhab or can you convince other people to follow your madhab? Will you be sinful for doing that? So you can switch your madhab, but you can't keep playing musical chairs with it because you're not going to get anywhere with that. Once you allow your nafs to come into that, that okay, I'm going to uh, do this madhab because they allow maybe combining between prayers. I'm going to take this madhab because they allow selfish, shellfish. Uh, the creepy khaba'if um, of the earth, uh, uh, sorry, of the ocean, right? Lobsters and things like that. Or for whatever reason, right? That, that's not the right reason to follow. You generally follow based on access, where you can get answers. Um, I've had cases where you've got somebody from a Hanafi background and suddenly I see him doing raf'ul yadain. So I said, brother, I thought you were Hanafi. He said, no, I've actually become Maliki. So I said, why are you raising your hands for them? Right? Malikis don't raise their hands either. It's just that you get some people who are a bit rebellious. They just like to be different from their community. So he thought, it's cool to raise my hands. So why are you picking another madhab? Mainly, you should pick according to access so that you can actually get somewhere with your madhab. Right? Don't just have this idea that, oh, this madhab is exotic, so I'm going to have this. Right? It's not one of those things. It's just real, practical. That's what it is. And number two, if you get a bit more advanced and you, you find the lyle, the, 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 the proofs persuasive of a certain mother mostly across the board, you like their methodology, their usul, because you've got to that level, then you can change that mother if you want to. We've had lots of scholars who've, who've done that, like Imam Tahawi and many others. So that's based on academics. But every week you take a different opinion or a, that's the issue. Can you 
uh, encourage people towards your madhab I would, I would only do that when I see people lost when I people see confused that look you've got access to this, do this but if I see somebody who's very happily shafi and they've got the access I'm absolutely happy with that right? so you don't want to do anything fanatical you don't want to do anything because you think only you will go to Jannah right? or that Isa al-Islam is also going to be Hanafi when he comes right? there are some people who believe that maybe he might be Okay, so you don't want to do it for those reasons, but if you want to share because mashallah you found a source to study and you found a lot of comfort in that, then yes, you can share. It just depends on why you want to share something. Uh, lest we forget, going back to the end of my talk, remember a madhab is a means to a goal. The goal is Allah. And it's very difficult, other than prayer and a few other details to know for example the difference between um, Sheikh Abdurrahman and myself what he's Hanafi I'm Hanbi. actually that forms in one sense that forms a very small part of our Muslimness life we don't meet each other we don't meet you and you don't meet us as Hanafis or Hanbalites we meet each other as Muslim brothers mm -hmm. uh, secondly uh, the six thousand six and a half thousand verses of the Quran 500 are ahkam 6,000 are beliefs history, morals, ethics, spirituality. Uh, that's really what defines us. So this is why it is so practical to have a curriculum, a madhab, that tells, tells me the basic halal and haram, tells me that, you know what, now that I'm going to start my big wudu, not just washing my hand, wudu, my wudu wudu for prayer, that I know there are six conditions in the, in the humbly school, six conditions that make my wudu valid or invalid. If I fulfill them, it's valid. Uh, in, there are eight obligations, eight wujub in, in, in wudu that I have to do, but they're not conditions. It's fantastic. Rather than the impossible, the impossible mission of working, the, working all of this out from hadiths or now and again listening to a scholar. How, many how, how, much, how am I going to learn all those conditions? And I just want to learn the six conditions and the nine obligations and this, that and the other so that I can get it out of the way and I can just do wudu according to what is valid in my Lord's eye so that the rest of my life I can try to stand before Allah with a heart that prays to Allah as well knowing that my fiqh is sound Sunni fiqh. So madhab actually is something that I just need the easiest way to get qualified answers, and that is madhab. Mm. But beyond that, that doesn't define my Muslimness. Mm. But it's an essential part of my Muslimness, without which, if I don't have sound outward fiqh, the outward rules of prayer, the outward rules of fasting, then there is no inward reality. There is no haqqaiq al-iman. There is no suluq, there is no tasawwuf. So I need the outward, and the outward can't be messed around with. You're either a qualified scholar, if you're a knowledgeable brother, I don't want to know. I want to know, are you knowledgeable enough that you're qualified that I can ask you and won't be sinful on the Day of Judgment? Because whatever, the, level of lay, the, level of, the level of striving of the layperson is simply that Allah expects the layperson to, say, to do their best to work out, is that person a qualified scholar or not? And one of the ways we work that out is, oh, I heard he graduated from Azhar University, Darulum Dirban, some Islamic university. Or the, everybody in the mosque lets him lead the prayer and, and lets him give talks. He must be a scholar. 
Okay, or that scholar, he, I know he's a scholar, Mufti Taqi is a scholar without doubt, and Mufti Taqi said, person X is a scholar. So now I know person X is a scholar. There are other ways as well, okay, but once I've done my best to realize he is a scholar, I can ask him uh, my fatwa questions, but my basic fiqh, okay, yeah, Hanafi scholars are going to differ about cryptocurrency and transge uh, transgender humanism and all that business, as will other scholars, but they, what they probably are sorted on is this is how you do wudu, and this is how you pray, and these are the ten, five things that break your fast, and that will be the case with all madhabs. So practically, stick to a Sunni madhab, and practically it has to be the one that you can access. If I don't speak Arabic, it's very difficult for you to access Hanbali school. There are a few Hanbali texts in English now, over the last four years, but they need commentary, and there are very few Hanbali uh, sheikhs teaching. In this country, in this country, 90% of the Muslims have a Hanafi attachment. There is a, a large Shafi contingency in the last 10 years there's been a growing Maliki contingency. And all those three madhabs are very practical to learn. The Hanafi being the most practical. Uh, more Hanafi mosques than there are corner shops in the UK. Alhamdulillah. So be practical. Why? Because you want your Muslimness and how we stand before Allah with a purified heart is really what I want to get to. And I just have to get my fiqh out of the way. And I know it sounds bad, get fiqh out of the way, but that really is what it is at the end of the day in the bigger scheme of things. If I've said anything wrong, inshallah, the Mufti will correct me. No, Jazakallah khair for that. See, being Hanafi or whatever is not an identity. You know, nowadays in the modern world, you've got a certain inclination, whether that be sexual or otherwise, that becomes your identity. You have to fly the flag for it everywhere. That's not the point to you. To be honest, I don't even think I'm a Hanafi. I don't think that I'm a Hanafi every day. Do you understand? It's not like, hey, I'm a Hanafi today, you know, and I need to do this because I'm Hanafi. It's just, that's what I've studied. That's what I know. That's how I practice. Alhamdulillah, and I feel comfortable about that. The only time that I need to do that is if I'm teaching in an educational setting, right? Or if I need to have a question, or if I need to go into other madhaim and see what they say when we're writing a fatwa. Maybe I have to deal with it a bit more because every day we're dealing when we're teaching fatwa, right? We have to deal with it. But otherwise, in my personal life, I never have to even think I'm a Hanafi. It's not one of those things you, you wear on your sleeve or something. It's just that you've got it done. It's a tool. And mashallah, then you focus on what, is the, uh, what are the most important aspects of life. Just one more question here. If all four madhabs are correct, then why can't we mix and match? Is it really that bad? Uh, I, d I don't think I answered that in particular But I think it would be cheating if you did that If you basically just pick and choose There's multiple reasons why you shouldn't be doing that Most of the time, I mean the extrinsic reasons Are that it's just you are basically looking for ease And it's not ease that we look for all the time we, That is a factor But we should be looking for the truth And the most important aspect that's one reason. Uh, you're not going to have any consistency in that regard. And it, it, understand this. This is the real reason. If I have, if I, for example, take the Shafi'i view that ble bleeding does not break the wudu, and I take the Hanafi view that touching my wife will not break my wudu, though the Shafi'i say it will, and 
The Hanafis say about bleeding that it will break, while the Shafi'is say it does not break. So I'm going to take the easy ones on both sides. Why not? They both done their job. It's fine. I should be able to take it, right? Problem is, I'm taking conclusions from two different frameworks that are contradictory to one another. So I'm taking solutions and conclusions that suit me, but they're both based on different frameworks that are totally different <coughs> to one another. And that's cheating. Let me at least be consistent in the framework that I'm going to take from because the same Shafi'i framework that led them to say that bleeding does not break the wudu led them to say that touching man touching woman does break their wudu same framework they're using that reached allowed them to reach those conclusions so what I'm doing is I'm taking one of their conclusions here but I'm ignoring the other one based on that framework and I'm taking the Hanafi framework on one of their answers and not the other one so that's cheating that's just like doing half half here and there that's a major academic problem right that's another reason and believe me you will end up getting confused yourself what will be your criteria what will be your criteria of when you will choose and the other question is that if I read some Shafi'i uh, uh, defense I'm like wow mashallah and then I go and read the Hanafi defense and I'm like okay I'll stay a Hanafi because mashallah they both give some really good all of them give some really good opinions then how are you going to decide which one is what do you have the prerequisite knowledge to decide that I want to prefer this oh it sounds good to me so what if it sounds good to you you know what is the basis what's your criteria there's going to be no consistency in that regard as well not only will there be no consistency at some point um, more than likely desires will be followed and some type of it's called talfiq in the, in the uh, in the religious vocabulary this joining together will be done in a wrong way and there are two spiritual points about that so leaving the academic uh, theological uh, juristic points that Sheikh Abdurrahman mentioned the two theological points are first Allah required of the non-scholar that they ask when they don't know. Our duty is just to ask, not ask loads of people and then pick and choose and mix and match. Ask someone who I believe is a qualified scholar or follow a school which is doing the same thing except it's doing it in loads of issues and just act upon it. Ask in order to act, not ask in order to write. I'll keep that on the shelf, then I'll ask someone else and ask, and then I'll choose because the Quran doesn't say that at all. So that's point one. It would not be doing in kuntum la ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. Uh, the second point, it goes back down to what some of the scholars have said. They've more or less all said it, but not as explicitly as this. There is a sir behind ittiba, there is a secret. There is a higher purpose behind this thing of obeying. Does Allah really, is religion, is Islam just about obeying, obeying a set of rules? Even if it's a set of madhab rules, is that really what Islam is about? Or does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want us to obey those set of rules because hopefully if we do it sincerely enough, they will lead to a genuine inward, inward realignment and a purification of the heart. 
يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَعْلُمْ وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنَ طَلَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ The Qur'an says that day, when, that day meaning the day of judgment, when neither wealth nor children will benefit anyone except he who comes to Allah with a sound heart. The outward fiqh done with good intention that I want to obey my Lord and worship my Lord upon sound knowledge, that is part of inward purification. Because I'm trying to put my nafs, my lower self, under a higher principle, which is following revelation through the medium of scholars when it comes to fiqh, but not through the medium of scholars when it comes to basic morals and basic uh, religion. But now put my desires, my whims, my ego as the criteria and that will judge revelation. And so it's important that we remember the sir of ittiba, the secret or the wisdom behind following you know, uh, scholarly proof and tradition is yakhrujul insan min muradi nafsihi ila muradi rabbi that we learn to give up our our own desires and likes and align them with the likes and the love of our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala and the madhab has been not just academically successful but it has been practically successful because it has gelled the Muslim communities together for close to 1400 years. The non-Madhab way, Sheikh al-Albani in the last years of his life has at least three sittings where he says, unfortunately, most regrettably, the and this is his view, whether we, we may not share, share it, he says the Salafi Dawa and the Salafi knowledge of this is Sahih and this is Da'if and this is this, has moved on quite well. But the tarbiyah has been a disaster even up until now. Definitely. And what tarbiyah was he talking about? Actually, hmm. my personal opinion is that tarbiyah goes down to the Salafi knowledge. There's a question about the But leaving that, the tarbiyah. Because actually, get, leave the madhabs. Even if you were to say, follow Bin Baz, Al-Albani, Ibn Uthaymeen. But it doesn't become that. That's why you find amongst even well-intended Salafis, the rivalry, the faction between them. If, if you Hanafis think you got it bad, try being a Salafi who actually deviates from the line of another Salafi and you'll know what bad is. Oh, crazy. And, and it's something that the scholars themselves recognize and it's something that they bang their heads against for the last 10 years of their life. And what's quite upsetting is, uh, so they're all in their 80s. They die in 1999, uh, Bin Baz 1999, uh, Al-Albani 1999, Ibn Uthaymi in 2000. Uh, and the, the, the first two are in the mid-80s and the, the second one is just in the, his early 80s when they you pass away. And they've That's never seen such disunity, fracturism and schisms as they did with these people who called themselves Salafis. And that's why Ibn Thaymin was forced to say, look, there's an obligation to follow the Ijma of the Salaf. Here is the Ijma of the Salaf. But that lot called Salafis, no. And he says, notice the difference, the ijma of the Salaf and then a hizb called the Salafis. Follow the Salaf, not the Salafis. Now, people, were, Salafis are working out who was Ibn Thaymi saying to, was it the Madkhalis, was it this, was it the Sururis? No, no, he was just saying, look, you've messed it up. And, and, and that same fatwa says, you're differing over ijtihadi matters. It's not permissible. Valid ijtihadi matters. Two rules, one rule, but Allah's madad. This can only happen when we lose Allah as our goal. 
and I don't want to scare us, but it can easily be done. We can start off with Allah and end up something. And that's, may Allah save us, inshallah. Uh, just before that yeah. last question, I just want to get, there's a, this book, Fiqhul Imam, uh, this book, Fiqhul Imam. Should I that question first? Or? No, I might forget it, okay. inshallah, and we'll end on an ilmi note. Okay. This isn't an ilmi note. Uh, this book, Fiqhul Imam by Sheikh Abdul Khan, that he, he said, um, 1994, you said it? I think so. So around about 1995, <clears throat> I was in one of the bookshops in London, Islamic bookshops in London, with very few bookshops at that time. <laughs> uh, there was a young Salafi brother in the bookshop, and I thought, you know what, I know this young Salafi brother, he's argumentative, and I'm Salafi, but I, you know, I just don't like the argument. I've never been like that. So I thought, oh, let me just, it's a small bookshop, but I'll stand over in the corner, and I did. So he's a young Salafi. So there's this brother, he's picks, and I didn't know about this book. Um, there's a brother who's come in and the lady says, oh, this is good, it's written by a Hanafi scholar and it gives you the proofs for Hanafi fiqh. And I thought, oh, at last someone's done something. Because remember I said I wish that the Hanafis would defend themselves instead of just getting punched by Salafis all the time and saying, please punch me. So here is a, you know, someone put on the gloves. So I was paying attention. So this brother is trying to convince this Hanafi brother, he realizes this is a Hanafi brother. I says, why don't you do Rafaya Day? And I don't know how long this Hanafi brother had this book in his hand, but he's got to the point where the proofs, the Hanafi proofs of not raising your hand except at the beginning, at the takbir, uh, why, you know, what the proofs are. He said, well, according to this book, and Nimawi was the name that I had never heard. Sheikh al-Nimawi says something, something. That's all I remember. Sheikh al-Nimawi said something, something, something about this hadith. Leaving Ibn Masood and Tirmidhi and whatever. And I thought, this is interesting. I, will ju I just want to know, for my own knowledge, what this Salafi brother will say. Because the Salafi brother will say, look, leave this. If I give you a hadith of the Prophet, you need to act upon it. Who is your Rasul? Abu Hanifa or uh, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi And the brother going, uh, but then he, you know, then the book. He said, yeah, but according to Shaykh Nimawi, da, 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 da. And so there, therefore, this is the hadith. Why you don't do The brother said, Okay, I just need to go back and ask my scholars. And at that point, I moved across from the end of the bookshop. See, I said, hold on a minute. I, I can't leave this. How is it okay for you to go back to ask your scholars whether Nimawi is correct or not or whatever? But some this brother has to follow the hadith right now, okay, without doing anything. How comes you can go back and check and whatever and you, he, he can't? I said, that's double standards, and double standards is a type of hypocrisy, my brother. I said, either you allow him to go back and say why he doesn't have to act on the hadith of Ibn Umar in Bukhari, like the Shafis do, or you have to right now change your way of praying, okay, and if it's Asr prayer, which is not going to be Asr prayer, you and I will go downstairs in the basement and you and I will pray, but you will leave that part of the prayer. And it was a part of the prayer, not doing Rafaidain, that Salafi is finding incredibly excruciating not to do. But it, it, it occurred to me that this is not a matter of knowledge. I mean, it is a matter of knowledge, but it's more a matter of the heart. So this book became my standard argument as well. And I would then go around telling Hanafis, even though I'm Salafi at that time, and I was studying humbly fit, I said, look, you just need to read this book, you need to read this book. And it used to really upset me a lot. And actually, it still upsets me even now. 
Why is it that something like this, I mean, it's a shame that he's here because I'm now embarrassing the Sheikh. But uh, I have said this to uh, uh, brother Yahya Batha of uh, Torah Publications. Why is it that books like this aren't in every masjid? Just like Sifat al-Salah is in every, uh, Sifat al-Salah of Sheikh al-Albani, uh, is kind of accessible in every Salafi masjid. This is more deserving. Okay. Why? Uh, and how are we going to... And it's not because we want a war. It's just that some people you can talk to and some people you just have to say, look, Nimawi said so. I, I actually don't even know who the Sheikh is, right? Nimawi said so. And khalas. And unless you have a quabble, you know, squabble with him, then please, let's, let's just have a doner kebab. There's a really good question online, right? In terms of the different madhabs, what is it that actually differs between them? Is it how they use different sources and how they value different sources? And does that mean sure. when a Hanafi scholar is looking at a problem, will he or she always come to the same solution? And will they come to the same solution as other scholars of the same madhab? Is this another reason why you should follow a specific madhab, i.e. their method and framework is coming to conclusion the same every time and there is a sense of consistency in regard to decision making? Yes, I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, they may not always come to the same solution, especially on new and modern issues. But yes, for the broad, uh, broadly speaking, they're using it's the way they look at hadith, they look at the narrators, they look at... Uh, um, who's narrating from who sometimes it goes into that kind of depth they look at so you take any one issue and they'll find all the hadith on the subject there could be 30 different narrations with slight differences some with more detail than others so you look at all of them and then you look at the strength of each of them uh, you look at how others have taken them and so on and then eventually they'll make a judgment so there's different criteria in the way they look at all of these. So the Hanafis look at it differently from the Shavi. That's exactly what it is. And I would suggest that um, you read this book if you're interested in understanding why there is differences. This is what opened up my mind. It's by Sheikh Zakaria Khandelwi. Right? I think somebody mentioned his name. Rahimahullah. The difference of the Imams. He starts from the time of the Sahaba and just goes down to show many, many examples of why there's even a difference. So that, you know, you don't feel like it's a bad thing anymore. That it's just inevitable. That is the reality and that's what it is. 1996, I just, I just realized it's 1996. Um, on that point as well, um, the, one of the books that kind of changed, uh, changed me, um, this book wasn't out then by Maulana Zakaria, rahmatullah but Shawulillah's uh, Al-Insafi Bayan, Sababul Ikhtilaf, the reasons behind the juristic differences. I read an Urdu, it's a small booklet, an Urdu translation of that with the help of my late father, rahmatullah uh, and I was just blown away of how he discussed that. Um, in the last 10 years or 12 years, someone has translated this book into reasonably good English. It's a really good uh, read. Uh, um, but I would say start with uh, this book. For those who aren't readers or academics, this book is fantastic, what Sheikh Abdurrahman mentioned. But those who have got a kind of academic mind and kind of really, Shawalillah's uh, book is just so well done. It's just a staple diet. In fact, just talking about Salafi scholars, uh, Sheikh Albani, I once heard on a recorded cassette tape, I know you youngers won't know what a cassette tape is, but on, a, on an audio file, I heard Sheikh Albani say that this book is uh, unique uh, in, uh, in, its, uh, in the way it's written and how he's condensed the topic. That was years after I had already read it. Um, so there is more to some of these Salafi scholars. Um, I sometimes do feel that Salafis make it worse than what their scholars have actually said. 
uh, but Sheikh Abdul Rahman did start on a good note that things have got better, inshallah ta'ala. And anyway, uh, we can't have life smooth sailing. You know, we need something to kind of keep us alert, inshallah. So Allah bless us. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarakatiyat al-jalali wal-ikram Allahumma ya hayyu ya qiyum birahmatika nastaghith Allahumma ya hannan ya mannan la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inna kunna min al-zalimin Ya ma'adin al-judi wal-karam Ya akram al-akramin Wa ya khayr al-mas'ulin Wa ya khayr al-mu'teen Ya Allah, ya Allah have mercy on us Ya Allah accept from us Ya Allah Ya Allah, we ask you for your generosity. We ask you for your blessings. We ask you for your mercy. We ask you for your benevolence. Oh Allah, we are your servants. We are your needy, impoverished servants. Oh Allah, we need you for our guidance. We need you for everything. We need you for our existence. Oh Allah, show us the truth as the truth and allow us to follow it. Show us the wrong as the wrong and allow us to abstain from it. Oh Allah, educate us. Oh Allah, purify us. Inspire us. Oh Allah, enhance us. Oh Allah, make us close to you. Oh Allah, correct our intentions. Purify our intentions. Oh Allah, become ours. Oh Allah, become ours. Oh Allah, allow us to become yours. Oh Allah, allow us to become yours. Oh Allah, everybody who's sat here today and those who've listened online on on this Sunday afternoon. Oh Allah, make this uh, a source of dhakhira and a source of treasure for them in the hereafter and for illumination in this life. And oh Allah, bless them and their children and their progeny until the day of judgment. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we thank you for relieving us of these problems now. Oh Allah, we ask that you protect us in the future as well. Oh Allah, that you allow us to focus on what is most correct and what is most beneficial and what is most useful for us to do in this world for this for the sake of this world and the sake of the hereafter. Oh Allah, bless all of those who've organized this program, who've contributed to this program, who've assisted in any way whatsoever, Amen. and all of those who've sat here and those who've listened. Amen. And oh Allah, allow us to do many, many more important programs. And oh Allah, protect us and protect us and keep us right. Oh Allah, protect us and keep us right. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil The point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, And that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam, and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.